Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Well, you won't hear that from many pulpits today, and I would say that's a problem. Our founders had certain beliefs, and those beliefs came from a political theology, a political theology that's developed from biblical times through Augustine on into the French Huguenots, into the Reformers, into the Puritans, and on into our founders. And those thoughts uh, on how citizens, and, and specifically I will say Christian citizens, are supposed to interact in the civil sphere, something that I believe the, the modern evangelical church has lost. We're going to jump in. I've got two pastors coming in to talk about this very weighty uh, and meaningful subject. Uh, this is definitely one you guys don't want to miss. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast where we're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. Before we jump into the content, I got to tell you, we need you guys to join the fight. What do I mean by joining the fight? How can you do that? Well, we are a nonprofit news organization funded by the people of Alabama, creating content and in gathering news and digging into corruption on behalf of the people of Alabama. So we need you to join the fight and financially support us. You can do that. Every article you go to at 1819news.com between the headline and the text, there is a button that says join the fight and it has different levels that you can join at. What you get for doing that, you'll have access to exclusive content. We'll be putting out at least one piece of exclusive content, top-notch content every single month, probably more than that. The only thing I'm going to guarantee is one. Uh, and then you'll also get uh, some really cool merch uh, that we'll be rolling out off the press here soon as well. Uh, but it is imperative that uh, if you guys love what you're getting from 1819 News, that you guys jump in at whatever level uh, you can uh, financially. Uh, and we really appreciate that. So today... Uh, I've got a really, really, really important subject I want to talk about, and it boils down to what are Christians supposed to be doing right now in this cultural chaos, in the midst of cultural chaos and tyranny and all of these other things. There's a big debate on what it is that Christians are supposed to be doing, and, and maybe you don't identify as a Christian. What are you supposed to be doing as a, a good person who doesn't like what's going on uh, in our government, in our education, everything else, and you want to push back. Well, we're going to give you some biblical guidance on that today. But the questions I want to answer is, is I want to bring it back to what did our founders believe? Because they believe anybody who considers themselves a conservative would go to our founders and celebrate uh, them as heroes. And the thoughts that they had, we all go back to, and the sayings that they had, and uh, the founding documents, the things that were discussed in the Continental Congress and when the Constitution was written and the Declaration of Independence was written and the Bill of Rights was written and all these things and we celebrate it and we laud it. But where did all that thought come from? Did it just happen in 1776? Did it just drop on them like a bomb? Or was there a history of what that political theology and political theory is and where did that come from? Why did they believe what they did and what is the history of that thought process and system, and how has that affected us and our nation? And so, uh, kind of for instance, um, Thomas Jefferson is noted for saying, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That would not preach in many churches. And Jefferson's probably the worst example of Christian out of our founding fathers, but even he knew that tyranny cannot 
blend together uh, with the freedom that comes in Christ uh, and a free society. And so he looked at tyranny as the ultimate evil and that it was every person's responsibility to push back against tyranny and to resist tyranny with all they had. And so he said to rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And there's another story I want to draw you guys in on. Um, it's the an appeal to heaven flag. Some of you guys may not be familiar with this. Some of you are. It's one of my favorite flags. Everybody's seen the Gadsden flag, right? The Gadsden flag is uh, don't tread on me with the, the coiled up snake on a yellow flag uh, and the don't tread on me text above it. Uh, but an appeal to heaven flag was a battle flag. And that battle flag uh, was brought into battle because one of the things that was going on is the king loved the trees that was in the new colonies because there wasn't a timber industry. So these trees were massive. They were huge. And they make perfect masts for the ships of the Royal Navy. And so he would go on to um, <clears throat> the land uh, of the colonists and he would mark those trees and say, this belongs to the king. Well, the colonists didn't much like that and said, no, these trees belong to us. These are my trees. And what ultimately it boiled down to was they said, okay, we're going to figure out whose trees these are, and we're going to let God say whose trees these are. We're going to appeal to heaven to see who these trees belong to. And so there's a, a picture of an evergreen tree on a plain white flag with very simple letters that say this is an appeal to heaven. They so resisted um, the king's unrightful claim on their property and their source of provision for their families uh, and their way of life, that they were willing to go uh, and battle the king's troops and die to prove that those trees did not belong to the king. Is that acceptable? Uh, things to teach from the pulpit today or uh, as, a, as, a, as a conservative thought leader, that type of resistance to tyranny? Well, we're going to talk about it. And so today, uh, I have two special guests that have um, had a huge effect on my life in in this exact regard and helping me understand it and, and shepherding flocks in different cities in our state uh, around these very ideas. And so I have uh, my pastor, Pastor Brandon Scroggins, joining us. Pastor Brandon, thanks so much for coming in. Such a blessing, man. Fin glad to finally be on and uh, fully support. Love what you're doing. Amen. Glad to have you. And we've got Pastor Rich Lusk coming in. He's now becoming a regular. Uh, it's 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 convenient that he's uh, really sharp, really smart, and articulate. And he lives in Birmingham, so he, he he's you know just drives right over here and hops on. So, Rich, thanks so much. You're great to be with in. you, Brian. Always awesome. a pleasure. I'm really really excited about this episode. I think one of the things that I want to do. I've spent a bunch of time um, learning about different I don't know different things that I think have helped my family, have helped me have a better grip on how to establish a better place to live, um, how you know, we should behave in a free society and all of these things. Um, and I want to figure out a way that I can start to, to, to put that into bite-sized nuggets and feed it to other people and, and, and watch their eyes open to like, wow. And the fact that it's, <clears throat> it's not just, these are not new thoughts. These are historical thoughts. These are the things that our founders believed and they believed it because it, those weren't new thoughts then either that it actually goes back farther. And so, um, pastor Brandon, um, when we were going through COVID, um, I was really, I was just blown away um, by the the work that he put in, and I I've talked about it on my podcast often. Uh, I went over to his house. He never told anybody this. He didn't go bragging or anything like that. But I went over to his house and I saw this massive stack of books that was David McCullough's books, like 1776. Some of David McCullough's biographies on our our <clears throat> our presidents. Um, there's a book called Slaying Leviathan, which interestingly enough, one of our producers, it's his dad that wrote that mm -hmm. book. Um, and there's um, 
all the books really that that really laid out this political theology that had been developed for years. And because of the the, the cultural chaos that was going on in COVID, <clears throat> Brandon, in order to shepherd his flock, which I am a part of, dove in and spent a ton of time studying this stuff so that he had it right, right? Obviously, the Bible in, is the biggest influence in that, and then all of these other texts um, to, to figure out how we got here and how he could shepherd us through this very unique thing. And our generation has never faced anything like the tyranny that we faced through the kind of the COVID lockdowns and everything like that. So, Brandon, talk a little bit about um, how you got to that point, why you chose to dive into those books, and, and what you really learned from that. Yeah, so if I could take just a few minutes to unpack this, because this was such a massive moment, I know in all of our lives, but it, but in mine, because of the implications that it had in my our, our church and our, our family, and I think this is important because I've talked to so many people who can relate to it. So, so where I was when COVID hit is I had given quite a bit of time to studying the sphere of the family uh, and to studying the inner workings and the sphere of what Scripture says about the church. Which, uh, but what I did not realize, uh, quite honestly, and I say this humbly, is I had not given enough thought to the public square, to the role of the civil magistrate, and to what Christianity looks like in the way that it informs and what Scripture says about the civil magistrate and his role and duty. So here we are, COVID hits, and we have some immediate decisions to make. Are we going to meet on Sunday? How are we going to respond to something that drastically affects our normal, tangible daily life? So I began to realize I'm going to have to figure this out really quick. And so I began to listen to and get my hands on everything historically I could find so that I could place where have we dealt with these issues historically? What does it look like? And what sort of precedent do we have? So uh, a guy named Samuel Rutherford, his his work, uh, Lex Rex, was instrumental, not only in my thinking, but in the thinking of our founding fathers. Uh, Junius Brutus, A Defense Against Tyrants, was instrumental in John Adams' thinking, a lot of our founding fathers. And then, of course, the things that you mentioned. So as I began to study and unpack these things, my mind was just open, and I began to realize this has been in the Scriptures the entire time, uh, but this is an area we've neglected. So one other point I wanted to mention is uh, as I began to study these things a bit more historically, I began to realize, you know, there's a pattern to where uh, a lot of times the church and citizens have found themselves flat-footed and unprepared because they've not been confronted with the situations. So as you study a lot of the historical giants, Luther and others, uh, it seems like when confronted with situations, they begin to rethink some of their previous positions. Mm particularly about what maybe we previously thought our role is, what Romans 13 teaches, what the Bible says about what we should and and shouldn't do as it pertains to our duty to the governor, to the president. And, uh, and so I began to realize, you know, these guys were confronted with hard situations. They had to go back to the text, and they had to rethink uh, how really should we be responding. And that was the explosion that began to make me think, okay, even if I've got to go against everybody in mainstream thinking, if this is what is right, this is what's right. Yeah. And the timing of it all, we had just gone through a really difficult time as a church. We were coming out of a very difficult time as a church. 
there was race riots going on all over the place. Critical race theory was kind of like rearing its head. A lot of the LGBTQ nonsense that didn't really affect our church at all. We're in Elmore County, Alabama, mm-hmm. right? or <clears throat> still a little bit of uh, you know sacredness left in the way that people view sexuality. Thank God. So that didn't really affect us, but it was you know the the racial issues were rearing their heads. You turn on the TV and you see cities burning. This is all going on, and then all of a sudden this this virus that's unleashed on on the world. What an interesting time to be a pastor and shepherd people through it. And one of the things I want to mention is you talk about Romans 13 and giants of the faith having to go back and question things that they've always believed. One of the things that I really admire, and I love John MacArthur, John MacArthur, his, his, um, he's, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him. Him and R.C. Sproul, I think to, to a huge degree are, are, are very much some of the, the big Christian giants that our generation has and has been able to learn from. But he interprets things a little bit differently as far as the Old Testament and affects how he does certain things and how he would even, um, you know, interpret Romans 13. And he had always preached, obey, 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 no matter what. Doesn't matter, obey. If, if you know, God instituted these leaders, if the leaders say it, it doesn't matter. You're just going to obey and God will protect you. Mm-hmm. Well, he 50 years he'd been preaching that, 50 years. And then, like, the first time Governor Newsom, right, the governor of California is like, John MacArthur, shut your church down. I don't think I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he started to you know, go to his Bible and go to some of those historical texts and even link up with other pastors that, um, you know, a lot of the guys up in Moscow and others who have been really teaching this stuff for a long time. Um, and he developed kind of a, a political theology all of a sudden that was not what he'd always taught. In his 80s. Yeah. In his <laughs> 80s. It's never too late. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think he had opposed the yeah. American War for Independence. Yes. Actually, publicly, like grounds. loudly. Yeah. Right? And it was very respectable that he would. Yeah. Uh, revisit that yeah and 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 i'm sure his congregation was thankful and there it was in the middle of you know california stan um meeting and gathering at at grace is it grace church that's the name of his church Grace Grace community Community church Church. yeah grace community church and uh you know places packed with people didn't have any health issues he's preaching the word of god people are so thankful for their ability to go to church and worship because it was actually being threatened by the government. And they got a sense of how important the worship service was and all these things. Um, and it's because those challenges came and it forced him to go back to the word and, and rethink things exactly as you said. So Rich, talk about what happened at your church where you were uh, when all that stuff got, you kind of alluded to a little bit on your last Alabama unfiltered episode that I thought was fabulous. By the way, that was one of my favorite episodes they've done. That was just so good. And again, I'm immersed in this stuff. This is this is like I'm, I'm this is like what I do for a hobby. It's like study some of this stuff. I'm not anywhere near where you guys are, but this is stuff that I like and I read. And so you're in there. Scott Beeson has a pretty good handle on a lot of this historical stuff. Um, Allison and Amy Beth are they're they're um, they read their Bibles and they're knowledgeable. But a lot of these concepts were very new that you were bringing to them and to watch their eyes just be this big through the whole thing. I thought was fabulous. So anyway. Um, talk about what happened at, at Trinity Presbyterian Church when COVID rolled in and kind of how you, what your response was. Well, yeah, um, I actually want to go back to one other thing that was said here earlier about Brandon, what you were talking about with your experience as a pastor focusing on the Christian life, on the family, on the church, and really ignoring politics. I do think that that is really widespread within yeah. the American evangelical and Reformed church. And one thing that strikes me is that uh, if you just preach your way through the Bible, you're going to be preaching on what we might call political concerns, public concerns, uh, civil concerns, 
repeatedly because it's just all over the place. So, for example, if you open up any one of the prophets, you're going to be talking about political issues all the time. The historical books of the Old Testament, it's there all the time. Uh, I, I like to remind people when they talk about Romans 13, and Romans 13 obviously is an incredibly important passage when it comes to our understanding of civil government, and it does call upon us to, uh, in ordinary circumstances, submit to our government. And, and yeah. we need that, that needs to be a, you know, a starting point for the discussion. We're not rebels out there looking to stir things up. Uh, we, we do want to be in submission to the powers that God has ordained and the powers that God has established over us. But I like to point out the fact that the same guy that wrote Romans 13, uh, we find out in 2 Corinthians 11, escaped from the civil magistrate by being let down through a window in the city wall uh, in a basket. Right. <laughs> so uh, this same man who wrote Romans 13 was ultimately put to death by Caesar because of his refusal to obey Caesar. Which so, is disobedience and resistance in itself. Absolutely. So so obviously, whatever Romans 13 means, it does not exclude uh, the possibility of civil disobedience. And there's a long history within the scriptures and uh, and from church history. There, there's a long tradition of, uh, of, of times in which it is fully appropriate to disobey the authorities. You see this, for example, with the Egyptian midwives in Exodus chapter one. Pharaoh says to he wants the baby boys put to death, and the Egyptian midwives deceive Pharaoh. They lie about what's actually happening, and they preserve those baby boys. Uh, you see it with Rahab in the book of Joshua, uh, where she protects the spies, and she basically uh, casts her loyalty, her allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that means that she uh, does. That, that she uh, deceives the ruler there in the city of Jericho. Uh, you see it with Daniel in the book of Daniel. Uh, several examples of this. Obviously, the most famous is in Daniel 6, where he disobeys the edict that prayer can only be offered to the king. You talk about statism. That's obviously just raw statism, idolatry. And Daniel disobeys that command. He continues on with his normal practice, continues to pray uh, towards Jerusalem. And, of course, it gets him thrown in the lion's den, but God vindicates him. Uh, you come to the New Testament, you have plenty of, of examples of this. I gave the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, plenty of examples in Acts where the apostles are told to stop preaching, and they say, we will obey God rather than men. Amen. Uh, and when you look at this historically, uh, it's interesting how the doctrine of civil resistance or a doctrine of civil disobedience has developed uh, in Christian thought uh, over the centuries. You go back to the early church and uh, it's, it's very simple. Jesus is Lord, so Caesar is not. And if Caesar requires me to burn a pinch of incense to his name, I will not do that. And Christians were thrown to the lions because they would not burn a pinch of Caesar, a, a pinch of incense to Caesar. Yeah. Because they knew Jesus was Lord. Uh, in the med medieval period, uh, Christians continued to reflect on uh, what it means to obey the civil magistrate, to obey the lawful orders of the civil magistrate. Augustine said an unjust law is no law at all. We're not bound by unjust laws. If a law does not conform to biblical law, to what we might call natural law, that is how God has revealed himself within the created order, we don't have to obey that law. Now, there may be prudential concerns that come in. When When is it wise to obey or, 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 or uh, go along with something because you, know, you think of Luke 14, you got to count the cost. Uh, but uh, certainly if we're required to disobey God, then we should 
then we've got to stand against that law. We've got to disobey man's law in order to obey God's law. But in the medieval period, uh, various theories of civil resistance were developed. For example, you had theologians who developed a doctrine of civil resistance based on baptism. And they argued that we are united to a higher king, we're united to the king of kings in our baptism. And so if a lower king, an earthly king, would require us to go against his word, we don't have to. Uh, we have uh, baptismal rights, you could say. We can stand on our baptism and say, we don't have to obey you when you uh, command us to disobey Christ. And that really fed into the Reformation. And in the Reformation, you really see an explosion of this um, of this doctrine being developed. It's not just about individuals standing against a tyrannical uh, decree, say, from the civil magistrate, but now you've got uh, the doctrine of what is called the lesser magistrate, the doctrine of interposition developed uh, by people like, well, Martin Luther played a role in it, and Nicholas von Amsdorf, who was his close associate, John Knox, probably wrote the definitive treatise on this in his letter to the uh, to the to the nobles. John Calvin deals with this in book four of his Institutes. And basically what they said is that when a higher civil magistrate uh, imposes some form of tyranny, uh, some unjust law, a lower civil magistrate can lead the people in standing against it. And so you, that, that's got very obvious application in our own context, which I'm sure we'll get to here in just a minute. But that's an incredibly important doctrine. Uh, there's no reformation without that doctrine because uh, it, there, there was a point where uh, the emperor wanted Martin Luther dead after Martin Luther had been to the Diet of Worms. Uh, and of course, he had safe passage uh, for that. But uh, as soon as he had made his Here I Stand speech, the emperor wanted him dead. And it was a lesser magistrate, Frederick, the elector, Frederick the Wise, who uh, protected Luther during that time against the wishes of the higher authority, the emperor, protected Luther, kept Luther alive, and that's why the Reformation was able to continue forward. A little bit later, the emperor wanted to re-Romanize those lands in Germany that had become Protestant, and it was the city of Magdeburg where uh, Luther's close associate, uh, Nicholas von Amstorf, uh, stood up to the tyranny and said, we will not cave in. And all these other cities in Germany uh, are, are, are failing to stand up to the emperor's decree to re-Romanize. And uh, the, the, uh, the emperor actually sends his troops against the city of Magdeburg. They defend the city and they stand firm and that preserves the cause of the Reformation. Same thing in Scotland. Uh, with John Knox, who develops this doctrine and preaches this doctrine, and it was so important. And then this is really, Brian, going back to where you started, this is where we get the American War for Independence, uh, is uh, it really grew out of this reformational thinking about civil uh, disobedience, civil resistance, the doctrine of interposition, uh, a covenantal understanding of civil government. Right, because those guys, uh, John Adams, our founding fathers, are reading all of the things that you're unpacking, right. their works, their right. writings. Right, yeah. Everybody knew John. Well, and you mentioned some, too, like Lex Rex and— and, and, and there are a number of, of works put out about this time, you know, in the, in, the, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, dealing with these specific uh, issues. So these were well known by the founding fathers. Uh, they, they relied on people like Rutherford. Uh, they knew John Calvin. And, and in some ways, they secularized this. You mentioned Thomas Jefferson in your yeah. open. He's an example of this kind of thought being secularized. Uh, but it's got Christian roots. And that, that's really, that's so important for us to understand today. Yeah. And... Um... Before we kind of jump in any farther, we want to uh, go to our sponsor um, and and hear a word from them. But I think w before we do that, it's it's really interesting. <clears throat> you can see the thought jump, and and of course, there's a lot of things that jump from Augustine into the Huguenots and Reformers. And there's this kind of dark period of not a lot going on there. From like when was was Augustine in the 300s or when was he? 
uh, late 300s into the early 400s. Yeah. And so, and then it, there's not a whole lot. I'm sure there's stuff there, but it's not as prolific, right? But you see Augustine's thought in City of God and really creating this political theology that would go on, and then you see it in the Huguenots, and then you see it in the Reformers, and then you see it in the Puritans, and then from the Puritans to the Founders, and the Founders founded America, right? And, it, and it's all from this thing called political theology or political theory that comes from the scriptures. So let's go um, listen to a, a word from our sponsor. Hey y'all, it's Allison Sinclair with Alabama Unfiltered. A lot of people ask me, what can I do to actually make a difference in DC and in my state government? And one of the most effective things you can do is write an old school letter to your elected officials. It seems super simple, but a written through the mail letter gets their attention much more than an email or a phone call. I use the Quick Letter app from my phone to write letters and it makes it so easy to write all of my representatives in DC and in our state a real letter in a matter of minutes. And so Quick Letter automatically determines your representatives and their mailing addresses. You write or dictate a letter on your phone and tap the name of every representative you want to receive that letter. And Quick Letter handles the delivery address, the return address, the greeting, the closing, the signature, the printing, stuffing, stamping, and placing your letter in the U.S. mail. Your governor, attorney general, state legislators, your U.S. senators, and congressmen need to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. Actually, a brief, simple letter usually has the most impact. Send a quick letter today and every day. Go to quickletter.com, that's K-W-I-K, quickletter.com, or download the Quick Letter app today. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, love our sponsor, Jim Hicks at Quick Letters. Uh, he's doing great work there. And at the end of the day, um, you know, we're talking about the founders and what they did. And and and, and we want to exhaust every potential, um, you know, any, any avenue that has been given to us in our system of government that we can. And one of those things is writing our representatives, right? And you see the Continental Congress, they wrote the king and wrote the king and wrote the king um, before they went into other measures. And we have an opportunity to be able to write our representatives and speak to them and influence them and talk to them and let them know what their constituents believe, think, want, need uh, so that they can go represent us. And, and what Jim Hicks has done, uh, as you heard in the commercial, is he's created an app. It's very simple. Uh, download the app on your iPhone or your Android. Go on there um, and sign up. You put in your address or whatever, and then it, it tells you who your representatives are for where you live. You can write all them, and you can write representatives that are not your representatives. And it's really easy. Um, you go on there, you type it out, type out whatever your letter is, and press send. It costs like a dollar ninety nine for your first letter, and then every subsequent letter after that, it gets cheaper and cheaper, down to about a dollar forty nine a letter. And I know that it works. I wouldn't have um, a sponsor on here if if I didn't believe that it worked because I got quick the Quick Letters app when I met Jim like a year and a half ago. And then my wife used it to send our representative uh, a letter about something that she was very passionate about. And my representative <clears throat> picked up the phone and called, called my wife and thanked her uh, and said, you know, this is the, the you know, most well-written, well-presented letter I've seen since I've been in office. This thing was, you know, delivered and it looks pristine and it, and it lands on their desk. And they read it and it was so impressed by it that, 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 that he picked up the phone and called my wife and thanked her. These are the type of things that we have to be doing. We can't think, oh, they're not going to listen to us. They're not this. They're not that. We have to do what what we have the opportunity to do. And Jim Hicks at Quick Letters has given us the opportunity to write our representatives in a really easy way to where you don't need to break out the uh, the quill pen and the, the, the dipping it in ink and on parchment. You can go on there to your phone, um, ship off a letter, 
uh, and make your voice heard. So make sure you're doing that quick letter app um, right in your app store. So download that. So, all right. Um, jumping back in, uh, we, um, we, we covered a lot there and we've got a lot more to pack into not a whole lot of time, but don't feel rushed. We'll get to what we could get to. <clears throat> One of the, 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 the breaking thoughts in, and it really is in a view of Romans 13, uh, is this idea of divine right of kings versus consent of the governed in this whole space. And that's really where a lot of this Protestant resistance theory comes from. Brandon, if you want to talk a little bit about that and what you discovered and what the history of that is. Brian, I'm realizing you're in trouble today because you're talking to two preachers, and yeah. preachers love to talk. Yeah. <laughs> we we'll talk for a living. Today. I mean, we yeah. did, right. Uh, Rich, I think you did an outstanding job unpacking that, and and what I hear your point being is is that basically uh, the idea of civil obedience is is n- the norm position, that there is a time and place for that. This has been the norm within mainstream Christianity throughout the history of the church, going back into the Old Testament. Uh, so the way I've unpacked this for our church is is that you basically have two options, whether you're, uh, we're in the church, whether we're in the civil sphere, uh, whether you identify as a Christian or not. And the way that this was broken down, uh, Reformation period, post-Reformation period, so we're talking 1500s, 1600s, and so forth, is the the prevalent position was what was labeled the divine right of kings. And so you say, well, uh, what does that mean? And I would basically define it this way. It would mean that uh, your position as a citizen or as a subject is uh, shut your mouth and do what you're told. Uh, and so if you are told by a legitimate civil magistrate or anyone in authority to do something, uh, then you do it or you're disobeying God. And so you either believe that they have unlimited, absolute, direct authority uh, to command you to do whatever their whimsical desires would say, or you believe that they have more of a mediated, secondary, indirect authority that's been given to them that is restrained and that there's boundaries to this authority. And honestly, to me, it seems like the the more mainstream position today is if they tell us to do it, we just need to do it. So there's no thinking through uh, really what the scriptures say on this. So uh, we can disagree at what point civil disobedience needs to take place. There's a time and place for it. But the fact that there is a place for it, uh, we really can't disagree about that. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me that um, when it comes to other authorities, other spheres where you have Mm. an authority... (laughs) There's no hesitation in right. putting qualifications on things. I mean, if a pastor preaches on Ephesians 5 and starts talking about a wife's, you know, Paul's command there to wives to submit to their husbands, the typical evangelical pastor is going to spend more time, he's going to spend more of his sermon right. making qualification on that than yeah. actually explaining what it means. Right. Yeah. Uh, because there's this hypersensitivity that a husband somewhere might be a tyrant. And obviously some husbands are, and and, and all those qualifications are, can be perfectly appropriate. Uh, a, a wife that should, does not obey her husband or submit to him unconditionally. There are right. limits on that. And, and you don't have unlimited authority to do with your children. The same thing with children. I mean, if a, if a dad tells his you know, his son to go rob a convenience store and says, Hey, look, if you get caught, you know, it won't be nearly as yeah. severe consequences as if I get caught. Okay, we'd all say that the the child does not have an obligation to obey his dad's unjust command. Yeah. 
Uh, and even in the church, we get this, you know, where you don't have to obey your pastor and elders if they if they are teaching something contrary to Scripture. But for some reason today, there's a real reluctance to talk about this when it comes to the civil magistrate. And I think we need to be aware of that. We always need to be aware of our own tendencies. Uh, we are often very good at guarding against temptations that are not really our temptations. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, you know, confronted with a flood, we break out the fire hoses. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we, 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 guard, you know, we don't guard ourselves against the real temptations we yeah. have. And we constantly guard against temptations that aren't really that tempting for us anyway. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of guarding against temptations from other eras or other places. And so we actually then have these huge blind spots. But uh, I think we have to be very aware of the fact that when the civil government oversteps its bounds, that's a very dangerous thing. Francis Schaeffer, you know, a generation ago, uh, warned evangelicals and said the great threat to the church, you know, to come is going to be statism. It's going to be an idolatrous state that claims to itself prerogatives that are not that don't rightfully belong to it, uh, a state that oversteps its bounds, which is interesting because there was a great deal of sensitivity to that kind of tyranny earlier in church history, and we kind of lost that sensitivity. But it's interesting. If you read through, again, so many places in Scripture that deal with this. Um, I've actually been in Zephaniah recently, and in Zephaniah, you know, part of Zephaniah, you talk about politics and preaching politics, that kind of thing. Zephaniah is a political letter. Uh, it's a political prophecy. It's addressed not just to Judah, even within Judah, it's addressed to not only the priests and the prophets, but also the civil rulers, the judges and the princes and so forth. And actually the whole point of the prophecy of Zephaniah is to really support King Josiah's reforms. But Josiah, but uh, Zephaniah also addresses other nations around Israel, and he addresses their governments specifically. And when he's addressing Assyria and the capital city of Assyria, which is Nineveh, which of course is famous for other reasons, Book of mm -hmm. Jonah and Nahum deal with Nineveh as well. Uh, he says that the city of Nineveh says for herself, I am, and there is none beside me. I am. That's the covenantal name for God going back to Exodus yeah. 3. There is none beside me. That's how God describes his own uniqueness in Isaiah 45, 5. So for the city of Nineveh to say, I am, and there's none beside me, this is, this is statist tyranny, which is idolatry. It's blasphemous. But when I preached on this, I said, look, is, is, is the city of Nineveh saying, I am, and there is none beside me? Is that any more blasphemous than a state that says, we can redefine marriage? We don't care how God defined marriage in his word. We can redefine marriage however we want. Redefine marriage. What, what is a boy? What is a girl? So we can do away with the permanence of marriage. We can do away with the male-female complementarity of marriage. Yeah, we can, we can do away with genders themselves. You can create your own gender. We'll have this as a state-recognized, state-sponsored thing. That's every bit as blasphemous as if Joe Biden stood up and said, I am, and there's none beside me. I'm waiting on that. That actually should come any day now. Go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> you know, re returning to your previous illustration, I, th I think there's a distinction to be made as well, Rich. Uh, the way I've explained it to our congregation is, is let's say a man breaks into your house and uh, the lust household, and he begins to tell your wife, your children what to do. He begins to completely overstep his bounds and try to run your home. He'd be dead, actually, before he got that one. <laughs> right. Uh, so there, there, there's two questions to ask, but they're still the same outcome. And, and the question is, is this a legitimate authority? Is this someone that is a, uh, is this, you know, someone who's been placed in authority by our civil government, uh, but it's an illegitimate use of their authority? In other words, stay in your lane, buddy. 
and this isn't it. They're outside their jurisdiction. Right. Or is this an illegitimate authority altogether? This is someone that is not legitimately recognized as an authority and not even in this realm. Either way, uh, that's the conversation of civil disobedience. Yeah, so so I, I, I was talking about this earlier, kind of the progression in the history of Christian thought as, as the church has developed, reflecting on the scriptures, as the church has developed her understanding of civil resistance and, and how that plays out. So by the time you get to the Reformation, uh, you have this doctrine of... of uh, of interpo- interposition, the doctrine yeah. of the less, lesser magistrate, which is really important in our context because that's all about localism. And that's what yeah. 1819 is about in a large degree, getting back to not just focusing on the federal government, but the, you know, what if the federal government's not the solution, it's the problem. Yeah. And so what role can state governments or local city and county governments and even like your local sheriff and that kind of thing play in dealing, you know, what, what role do they have to play in dealing with what we're, uh, what we're up against? But, um, with this covenantal understanding of civil government that arises during the Reformation, basically the idea is something like this, and this this comes, I'm not going to go into all of the biblical warrant for this because I know we're, we only have so much time, but there are good biblical arguments to be made for this, uh, that basically if a civil ruler oversteps his bounds and acts tyrannically in a habitual way, it's like having grounds for divorce in a marriage. We know that as sad as it is, some, there are situations where Which is exactly what we see in the Declaration of Independence. That's what the Declaration of, of Independence Long is. It's a divorce of, decree, and yeah. it gives the grounds. It's addressed to the king. These are all of our grievances with you. These are our grounds for divorcing you. As our king, and he said it's a but long they list did of it. injuries and usurpations. This right. is what this is what's important to understand. The, the the colonists were not throwing off government as if they wanted anarchy rather than tyranny. They were operating under the authority of their lesser magistrates. So when the colonists got a tax bill from Parliament, they said, you know, Parliament's not our government. We have nothing to do with Parliament. We have our own parliaments, our own colonial legislatures here in the colonies. That's where the power of taxation resides. So Parliament has no authority to tax us, and so the Boston Tea Party. I mean, this is really what it's about. You know, this this it, it, no taxation without representation. The colonists didn't have representatives in Parliament. They had representatives in their legislatures in the colonies. That's where the power to tax would come from. So, so it was a very well thought out. Uh, and 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 uh, all kinds of biblical principles applied in the American War for Independence. Uh, it, it actually was known in England as uh, the, um, the 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 Presbyterian pastors in particular were known in England as the Black Robed Regiment because mm. they would wear these black Geneva gowns when they preached, and they were the ones who were driving this forward, saying we have this covenantal understanding of civil government and the king and parliament. The king has broken his covenant with us, and so therefore we have grounds to divorce the king. And let me insert something. There's two things I want to insert. One, in that covenant comes rights and responsibilities for both parties. Absolutely. And so the beauty of our covenant with Christ is that he is the perfect king, and he always fulfills all of his responsibilities and and, and inherently has his rights. And then it's only the people that can break that covenant, right? He's a covenant-keeping God. He never... He never abandons his covenant. Well, human kings are not Christ, right? And they are given their authority by Christ, the ultimate king, and it's a limited authority. And the only authority they have is within that ruling covenant. And in that covenant, the king has responsibilities. He has rights as a king, but he also has responsibilities. And it's very similar to when you get married. A husband has, you know, if if the husband is going to have authority over the wife, that means he has responsibilities, right? Um, It's not just a carte blanche authority thing. And so the king was responsible um, and you can probably itemize this better, but for for the well-being of the people who were in his care, he was supposed to have a benevolent heart towards his people as one who's been given a tremendous responsibility to make sure that they were provided for and protected. 
right? And, um, and that he was doing things a certain way. And with that, as long as the king was doing the things that he was supposed to be doing, the, the people, the citizens, uh, were to obey, right? They were to obey, and that is that, that, that right situation where, where Romans 13 does apply. If you have a ruler who is punishing the evildoer and rewarding the one who does good, that is a right-side-up government. That is not a tyrant. He is doing the best he possibly can. He's not perfect because no one is, but he is doing his best to, to rule in a way uh, that is synonymous with the way that Christ, in his word, says that a ruler is supposed to rule. And when that's happening, the people are supposed to obey, right? And, and they also have rights. But when that king becomes a tyrant and he begins to do things that he's not supposed to do and he's not keeping his covenant, that is when that divorce takes place. And that's when we have to institute a, a new government, right? And that's when Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, was a long list of injuries and usurpa usurpations saying, you know, King George, these are the things you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing. And because of this, that gives us grounds to break this covenant and and and, and create our own. And how does, um, man, I, and I hope when you guys knows this, because I'm going to butcher this, but um, in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, that's what it says is like in the history of, you know, the course of human history that, you know, there comes these events. When in the course of human yeah. events? The, the yeah. thing. Yeah. The, you the, know the, the thing, thing right? <laughs> And, uh, but, but he, but he's basically teeing that up to say that, you know, when these things happen, we actually have a right, not just, you know, not just a right, but a responsibility. We have to do this. We have to create our own government. We have to, uh, do these things. Like you said, I think the key to it is it wasn't anarchy. It wasn't right. okay. Now that we're not under King right. George, it's whatever goes Very right principled. now. It's actually like, okay, we're going to put King Jesus back on the throne and this is how we're going to do it. Right. And it was very thought out and, you know, methodical and everything else. Yeah. Let me, let me spell this out a little bit further, because I think this is something that like, when we think about politics in the context of the state of Alabama, this is where the doctrine of interposition and the lesser magistrate, I think is so, so important. So we've got all these examples, you know, biblically, you got lots of examples of this. Historically, we've got a lot of examples of this. We have had opportunities in our history where this ought to have happened and didn't. I think of the aftermath of uh, the Roe, uh, versus Wade uh, court decision in uh, 1973. It's it's not just unjust laws and unjust rulers that have to be defied. It's unjust court decisions as well. They don't have the binding force of law either if they are unjust. Uh, 1973 with the Roe decision was a perfect opportunity for Christian governors, Christian magistrates to stand up and say, no, not in our state. Uh, we are not going to go along with the legalization of baby murder. Uh, we're, we're going to stand against that. We're not, you're not going to do that in our state. And there's was not a single Christian governor in our country that did that. It was a colossal failure. It would have been unthinkable uh, earlier in American history for every governor to just go along with this unjust court decision. Uh, so that, that, that was a disaster. Um, in the aftermath of the Obergefell ruling in 2015 that gave us same-sex marriage, you had the same kind of thing. People said, oh, you know, we got a Supreme Court ruling. This is now law the, the law land. of the land. Law so, of the land. Well, no, it's not. And you had some, for example, uh, county clerks who would be the ones responsible for marriage licenses who stood up against, against this. There's a guy here in Alabama too. Uh, that that is Chief true. Justice Roy Moore. Yeah, we we there were there were a number of of people throughout the country, including here in Alabama, that did, uh, and I, that's that's laudable. Uh, we, we should have had more stand up against this. Now I know, like in our state, they've kind of basically circumvented this, so it's really not an issue the way that it was for the for the clerks or for pastors for that matter. But that's another story. But let me give you another example of this. And I actually just came across this one the other day. I probably heard about it back in 2020, but there was so much information flying around. It didn't 
I didn't make a mental note of it, so I've, I guess I rediscovered it here recently. But in uh, sometime in 2020, so middle of 2020, when the pandemic is all, you know, we're, it's kind of the height of things and you've got the lockdowns going on. In the state of Illinois, their governor, Pritzker, I believe was his name, uh, basically said businesses have to shut down and I'll tell you when you can reopen. You have to stay closed until I say you can open back up. And there was a county, I think it's Marion County or Madison County. You can look this up in the state of Illinois. I think it's kind of over in the part of Illinois that's across the river from uh, St. Louis. Uh, they said you know, their city board or county council met and basically said, nope, in our, under our jurisdiction, businesses can open up and we will do all we can to protect you if you choose to open back up. So they stand up to the governor of the state of Illinois. So this is interposition at work. You've got these lesser magistrates standing up to a higher magistrate on behalf of their people to oppose an unjust lockdown. And at first the governor said, well, I'm going to take away your state funding and your federal funding and I'll show you. And, and they didn't flinch. These lesser magistrates did not flinch. They just said, it doesn't matter. Do what you're going to do. We want to, keep, we want to give people the freedom to open up if they want to open up. And within about a week, the uh, law enforcement, I don't remember if it was sheriffs or, or statewide police, basically came out and said, if you are opening up a business, even if it's before the governor says you can, if you're opening up a business, we are not going to arrest you. Yeah. Well, there it is. So, so, so the unjust decree of the governor then had no effect. Without, without law enforcement backing it up, it goes nowhere. You saw the same kind of thing in Canada where the police would come in and try to arrest pastors and shut down worship services. If those police officers would not, if they would not go along with enforcing the unjust decree to shut down churches, it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what the higher magistrate says. If lower magistrates won't enforce it, it's not going to right. happen. Right. So the, the issue there and, and the conversation that needs to be had is say that police officer, whoever it is, is going to say, well, I'm just doing my job. Exactly. No, you're, you're not doing your job. Your job is to do what is just. That is your job. And right. so it, it's not just to obey orders. I mean, if we're going to let people off for obeying orders, what do you do with, with the Nazis? They were just yeah. following orders too. You're doing my um, job. Yeah, so that, that doesn't work. So you, you, your job is to do justice. Right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, this is just one big pitch to let you know how important the sher- you know the office of sheriff is. Not right. Absolutely. That's not why we're doing that, that, this. That but as, as you bring that up, in. sheriff is the ultimate law enforcement authority in every county. They have ultimate legal uh, you know law enforcement authority. And so if you have a sheriff who understands these things, it doesn't matter who the governor is. It doesn't matter who the president is. If you have a sheriff who understands this, and 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 again, he's in the same exact position in a in a normal situation when it's a decent governor and a decent president who's not trying to just put their boot on the neck of the citizens of that county. Of course, he's going to go along with what everything's going on. But when that time comes, when that authority is upside down, and 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 the government begins to do the opposite of punishing evil and rewarding good, they begin to punish good and reward evil. When those type of things happen, and COVID to me was the most clear instance of it that we've seen in our recent history, um, you see, uh, you know, some lady in Texas, in Texas, in Texas of all places, some lady was cutting, you know, cutting hair, and the cops showed up and arrested her for cutting hair so she could feed her family during COVID. It's like, hey, look, you know, this little two hundred dollar stimulus check that you're going to bankrupt our country with is not doing anything to feed me. It might assuage the consciences of Congress, but it's not actually putting food on my plate. So I'm going to go do the thing that I do to provide for my family. 
and I'll do it with whatever stupid safety measures, you, you know, I'll put a face mask on and, and whatever else. We'll stay six feet apart except for the, whatever. We'll do everything we possibly can, but I have to work and feed my family. Cops rolled up, shut it down. There was a bar that decided it didn't want to shut down in these tanks. Like, like, you know, why do these cops have tanks? I don't know. That's a whole other subject for another day. I'll bring Craig in for that. It's um, not to stop the BLM riots. We yeah, know that. Yeah, <laughs> not to stop the BLM riots. So they pull in in a tank and they go like full SWAT team to like, there's like seven people in a bar. Shut the bar down. And it's like, I don't think that's what law enforcement is there for. Right. And so that was an opportunity where we could have shined and we didn't, but I hope it was at least a learning experience. Well, let me give you one, one more example. Yeah, now it seems like our, our IRS agents are getting those tanks. Yeah. <laughs> this is what's really frustrating today is that the, the doctrine of interposition is alive and well. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate is alive and well in our culture today, but not with conservatives. It's the progressives who own it today. They've stolen a page from our playbook and now they are running it with great success. So for example, you have so-called sanctuary cities where a progressive governor will say, well, we're just not gonna enforce federal immigration law in our city any longer. And you know, federal government, come and make us do it if you want, but we're not gonna enforce these laws, okay? Because they, they're saying those laws are unjust. Uh, or the same kind of thing happens with federal drug laws. We're not going to enforce federal drug laws anymore. We're going to let people go. We're not going to, uh, even if the cops make an arrest, the DA will say, I'm not going to prosecute. And so nothing happens. So, so you've got lesser magistrates who are progressives who are using, you know, basically, you know, John Calvin's Institute's book four, Doctrine of Interposition. They are taking that and they are using that to their own advantage politically, while conservatives just say, well, we just, you know, we got to go along with yeah. whatever they say, whatever they tell us to do, we've got to do. And they tried it with Roe. I mean, right here in, in Alabama and in, in Birmingham, one of these uh, DAs or whoever it was was basically like, well, we're not going to force that. If you want to continue killing babies, we, you, you know, you're not going to have any repercussions. I mean, that's even true. on that, yeah, they, that's were, right. they were running that's right. that play. Yeah, that's so, right. That's right. Which is a great point, but it's not surprising when you think about it, because everything God gave us as good, the nature of sinful humanity is to pervert it in an evil way. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the answer is to use that idea, that ideology, that doctrine uh, correctly, justly. Amen. Uh, one of the other points I want to make before we jump into another topic, and, and I've gone over it multiple times on my podcast, and I wish I had like a little whiteboard in here and I could show it to you guys because it's easier to see than it is to hear and understand. But if you if you look at the three jurisdictions that God gave us, and this is where this really all comes from, and it's really easy to see. You have three jurisdictions, primary jurisdictions. There's others, but there's three primary jurisdictions that God gave us. And if you imagine each one of them is a circle, you have the family, you have the church, and then you have the state. And what is really, it seems like there's been a struggle throughout Western history, and the struggle is who has more authority, the church or the state? Does the state have more than the church? And then there was a time period when, the state, you know, the, the, the church had more than the state. and the, sto the, the church was essentially wielding the sword the way that the state was supposed to be. Um, and I found out today, listening to Slaying Leviathan, that that actually came from a doctrine that Augustine put forward um, where, you know, you can't, um, you can't take pagans and force them to be Christians. But if you have someone who is a professing Christian who leaves the faith, you can actually use the power of the sword to push them back into the fold. Crazy. And then that's where, like, the Roman Catholic Church got off. They started killing heretics and everything else. And I was like, I didn't know that. So anyway, um, backing up to the thing, though, so you have these three spheres. Um, each one of these spheres has authority right, and responsibility inside of those spheres, and it's not that one is over the other. They're all three. can't put your hand in front of the microphone. It doesn't work as well. Adrian, my producer's going nuts. Sorry. 
So they're they're all three on an even playing field, and Christ is Lord above all of them. The only authority that each of these spheres has is derived from King Jesus, and it's limited authority. That was what you were going back to with the divine right of kings. Divine right of kings said that the king is the ultimate authority and God will work it all out in the end. And it's not to say that God couldn't do that, but that's not what has been taught throughout history. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's all every authority on earth that a human has is a limited authority that's derived from Christ. And with that authority uh, comes the responsibility to use that authority the way that Christ says to. And when you begin to use that authority in a way that it's not in line with how Christ said to do it or you know the way the Bible outlines it, you are becoming a tyrant. And I, and I show that to my kids in my house. Who's the ultimate authority in the house? They're always like, daddy, daddy is, daddy is, daddy is. And it's like, yeah, I mean, yes, but who's ruling over this house? Dad, 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 no. Ultimately. Ultimately, and they say, God, and I always say they give the Sunday school answers, God, Jesus, God, <laughs> Jesus. And they do that and they get about 80% of the questions right. Um, <clears throat> but... But what it is, is 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 the word of God is ruling over our household. King Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling over our household through his word. Daddy is in submission. I am obeying, right? And God says the way that you children can obey God is by obeying your mother and father. And the way that daddy obeys God is by obeying the word of God and ruling in our household. And that's a real dangerous word these days to say ruling. But ruling is the thing. I am responsible responsible for the protection, provision, and the enculturation and training up of my children. God gives me that authority. I'm going to have to face God what did you do with that authority I gave you, Brian? Um, and I'm going to say, well, I was a tyrant or I was, or I abdicated or I did my best to faithfully rule the way that your word told me to under submission to you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Here, here's where I, I think you lay that out extremely well, Brian. So here's where I think things broke down during COVID. So God has given a jurisdictional authority to the family. Uh, he's given another to the church and another to the civil magistrate. And as you said earlier, what that means is that there are rights and responsibilities uh, that are inherent within that. Well, I think what COVID revealed is that in our homes, uh, with training our children, loving our wives, assuming that authority, and then in our churches with the ministry of word and sacrament, we have not been feeling out and exercising the jurisdictional authority that God's given us. So there's a bit of a void, a vacuum there. Mm. But what happens is that there's never actually a void or a vacuum some other authority from one of the other spheres will inherently try to take over the authority that's not being exercised. And so that's where I think we begin to see the government step in and to begin, not begin, that this has been happening for a long time, but to take over authority that belongs to fathers and mothers, that belongs to pastors and elders and, and to church members. And then that authority is just naturally given over. You want us to close our church? We'll do it. You want to, you want to parent our children for us? We'll let you. Yeah. And, I, and what's interesting is we can see the danger of letting the state parent our children, but I think one of the first steps that got us into that position is we started letting the church parent our children. I, now, if, totally. if I'm going to pick the state of the church, I'm going to pick the church to parent my kids, right? But at the end of the day, it's ultimately, it's up to the father, it's up to the household, it's up to the mother and the father to take the full weight and responsibility of the discipleship, the training, the you know, training them up, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the enculturation, the paideia is the word, with their children. He has to fully take responsibility for that. And the moment that you don't, you're now abdicating and you feel better because it's the church. Well, the church isn't equipped, right, to do that. The church will probably do a better job than the state just by the nature and the makeup of, of one being moral and the other one being kind of mm. amoral, it seems. But it's still going to break down. It's still going to be a breakdown. And then all of a sudden the church is putting all these resources into doing something it was never supposed to do. And I think the breakdown, and you guys can hit me with a stick if I'm wrong on this, 
you know, the ultimate um, responsibility that, that the family has is for the provision, protection, and the spiritual nourishment of those in its care. Um, the church is responsible for the, the pr- preservation of the sacred text, the preaching of the sacred text, and the administration of the ordinances. And it's the job of, and we, we already hit on this, with, of, of the state to punish evildoers and to, to, to have a society that would reward good behavior. Those are the responsibilities of those things. And when one starts to try to do the responsibility of the other is when we start to get in trouble. Yep. Yep. Now, where do we go, Rich? Well, let's talk about what we can do. I like that. About this. Yeah. Let's talk about what we can do. Um, there are a lot of options available to us as Americans. We, you know, we still live in a great country despite all that's, that's, that's happened. Uh, I mean, obviously American history has always had its ups and downs, but particularly we've had some, uh, you know, very disturbing trends over the last, you know, several years. But uh, there are a lot of things we can do. Um, one thing, for example, is if there is a uh, an unjust law, uh, one thing that our system allows you to do is to simply disobey that law and then get your day in court. Uh, the, the, I, the civil rights movement was obviously a very mixed bag in all kinds of ways, constitutionally and otherwise. But one of the, I think, effective strategies and legitimate strategies used in the civil rights movement was to simply disobey a law uh, and then go to court and get to have your say. And that's one of the ways that not only was public opinion swayed, but laws ultimately were changed as well. Uh, I think another thing that would be great to reinstitute is the tradition of election day sermons. Uh, So it was a custom for a long time, uh, going back to colonial America and then after we existed as as a country for a long time, to have election day sermons where uh, what typically would happen, the customs varied from place to place, but typically what would happen is on election day, of course, there'd be, you know, people would go vote and there'd be, you know, big celebrations and whatnot, but also all the politicians would go down to the local church and they would hear a sermon from the pastor about their responsibilities as magistrates. And of course, citizens would hear about their responsibilities as well. That was a wonderful tradition. Occasionally, you'd have Election Day sermons preached in the legislature itself, perhaps, but usually it'd be the the politicians coming to the church to hear the Word of God taught. Now, obviously, there's a lot of churches where (laughs) this would probably make things worse rather than better. (laughs) That's the reality we're dealing with. But, and I I mean, and obviously, we also can't compel uh, civil magistrates to come attend our church. But I I think doing doing certain things that uh, call attention to these themes in Scripture and these themes in church history would be really, really important. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with with, uh, pastors uh, being willing to preach and teach on on these matters. Yeah, and I I would add to that as as well, um, all of those three spheres that you laid out rest on the underlying issue, which is self-government. Uh, so we won't, <laughs> I tell my children all the time, like any good parent should, uh, discipline yourself or you will have to be disciplined. That's right. So we want to learn to govern ourselves according to scripture justly. And, uh, and then we want to fill out that authority that we talked about earlier in our homes. We want to take back the authority to train our children, to educate our children, to, uh, to lead our wives, to do family life the way that God intended. And, uh, and, and then in the church to begin to recover, uh, wait a minute, uh, we have a sphere that has shrunk, and our rights and responsibilities need need to be uh, exercised the way that they were. So we need to begin to take that back over. Yeah. And then, uh, what I'm one of the things that I'm most excited about with eighteen nineteen is the way that this developed, just through conversations in the local church. Of uh, you know, like you always say, Brian, we can sit there and scream at Fox News or whatever it is, 
and see nothing come from it. But what if we begin to start on a local level to affect change in our homes, in our churches, in our local communities with personal involvement and with a voice uh, and with action with the things that impact us most, which is the plan that our founding fathers seem to have had. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read, uh, it, it seems like there was almost some difficulty in the early years of our country filling out the Supreme Court and some of these uh, you know, early uh, institutions that we have because everyone was so glued in locally. It, and so it was almost like, why would I go do that when I can affect change? It was an act of great service. You didn't yeah. go to D.C. to get wealthy right. as an inside trader. You went there to serve yeah. and, uh, and often at great personal cost. So yeah. yeah, we we've definitely you know now we got career politicians and yeah. and uh, and you can make a very nice living you know that way. What what I would say is well, one thing I would I would be interested in. You know, we live in a state where most of our elected and probably unelected officials claim to be Christian. How many of them have ever heard of the doctrine of interposition? Yeah. How many of them know anything about the lesser magistrate? The reality is, if you want Fox News to not matter and 1819 to matter, the, the key there is interposition. It is the lesser magistrate. It does not matter who gets elected president or who sits on the Supreme Court or what Congress does. If you have righteous and courageous government in your own state, in your own locale, you can stand up to any of it. Yeah, yeah, really, That's, and so it just does not matter. Yeah, but if you're, and and of course, part of the problem here is that I think states have um, largely been sucked into feeding at the federal trough. So because states now depend on federal money for so much, they they can't stand up. Yeah, they've sold out their sovereignty, so they can't stand up to the federal government. But and and so with freedom comes responsibility. You can't just have Spider-Man. the free. Yeah, that's right. That's. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he got that right. But but we, you know, if you want freedom, you also have to take responsibility. If you want if you want the the, the privileges, you've got to fulfill the obligations. And, and that goes back to that self governance. I'll kind of give my what can we do. Uh, and before I go into my what can we do, and if I forget because my short term memory has been toast lately, I want to talk about covenantal repentance within each sphere. So you guys can remind me if I forget that about for what I'm about to say. So the the importance of this localism and, and it being preached from the pulpit. So so eighteen nineteen essentially started from a, a sermon that Pastor Brandon Pete preached after the twenty twenty election. So I was involved um, in national media, national fundraising, national politics, national public policy. That was my background with a heavy emphasis on the the media and the fundraising. That was my background. <clears throat> um, coming into the twenty twenty election from July to November, I helped uh, a group out of Atlanta uh, called Job Creators Network with a, a massive get a media driven, get out the vote campaign where we had to raise millions of dollars and, you know, working with Sean Hannity and Dan Bongino and, you know, blah, 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 you know, Hugh Hewitt and all these guys to do a big, massive get out the vote effort. July to November, it was blood, sweat and tears, leave it all on the field, you know, 80 hours a week, biggest election of our lifetimes. We got to win. And so I did that. And then came November and I watched what happened in November. And I'm one of those weird people who thinks the election was probably stolen um, and, uh, I was just extremely disheartened. I'm like, I just spent July to November, 80 hours a week, giving it every single thing I had raised, you know, helped raise a ton of money, helped execute a really brilliant strategy. I watched all these other groups that were doing a ton of other things to really help, um, you know, um, keep good governance as good as, you know, again, good governance, that's a tall order, but you know what I mean? Uh, there was obviously a, a lesser of two evils in that situation, we'll say. And I, and I watched that happen and I just became disenfranchised with national media, national 
politics and public policy, national fundraising and all that. And I didn't know what the answer was. And I think it was the following Sunday, you know, prompted by what had happened. Pastor Brandon said, look, you're not going to fix DC. You need to turn off Fox news. And the, the, it was, it was really the principle of subsidiarity. I think is how you mm-hmm. preach it. You know, fathers, you need to fix your family. Fathers, you need to fix your family and you need to have your family in church and churches are part of the community. Communities make up cities, cities make up counties, counties make up states. This is how you win. And I went home and prayed with Christina, my wife, and I'm like, okay, God, how can I use my gifts, talents, abilities, resources, and relationships to make a difference for my people in place in Alabama? Well, a week later, Caleb Crosby called me about, you know, Phil Williams was getting a radio show in Huntsville, and they were, you know, wanting me as a radio guy. And I'd known Caleb, I'd met him a couple times, and we started kicking the idea around of, you know, how we can get Phil's radio show going, how, what, what does he need to sell inventory for? Da, 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 and we're on that. And then, we said, you know, what we need as much as a radio show in Huntsville that may go statewide is we really need a news and multimedia empire to take out AL.com. And I, and that was God answering that prayer. This is what you can do, right? And and here it is. And so and it all came from a sermon that Pastor Brandon preached, which will bring me— Good work, Brandon. Yes. Very encouraging. Which will bring me to my covenantal repentance. What can we do? So every man, uh, most men, I, I guess I would say, <clears throat> um, majority of men— are in uh, are in one of these spheres and they have authority and responsibility. So we'll go to the family. Are you a father? Exactly what Pastor Brandon preached. Are you a father? Are you the chief disciple maker in your home? As uh, <clears throat> Rich Wingo sat here and said, John Croyle picked up the phone and called him. No introductions, no niceties or anything. And he said, Rich, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm about to meet with your son. He's coming up here and I'm going to ask him, who's the godliest man that you know? And if he tells me anybody other than you, you're in sin and you need to repent. And he hangs up the phone, right? That's powerful. That's the question you need to ask yourself. If someone was to sit down with your son and say, who's the godliest man you know? If he doesn't say you, you're in sin and you need to repent. Have you been loving your wife and shepherding your wife? Have you been taking your responsibilities to rule your household the way that Christ rules with steadfast love and faithfulness? Have you been doing that as a father in your home? And if you haven't, you need to repent. Right and pray as the scriptures say that God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and that you be the man that God has called you to to be inside of that covenantal institution. And you love your wife, you provide for her, and you protect her, and you teach her about Jesus. You love your children, you provide for them, you protect them, and you teach them about Jesus, and you train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you have a bunch of them. I would advocate for me and my seven. Um, and then so that's that covenant institution. Well, and let me just throw one thing in. Yeah. I'm not we're going to no, keep you on me. track yeah, yeah, here, yeah. but I just want to throw something in here because I think in in the American context, the biggest thing that has invited tyranny into our everyday lives is the breakdown of the family. Yep. Now, we could say the state in some ways is behind that with, you know, various welfare programs that subverted marriage and family life, that kind of thing. No doubt. Uh, but I think the sexual revolution Feminism, the way they undermined the family, that has what that that has done more to bring. Uh, well, I would just say more to expand the realm of civil government than anything else. Because what happens is civil government becomes the surrogate father when fathers aren't doing their jobs in the home. What who becomes the protector and the provider? Uncle Sam, yep. in place of the father. And that's it, uh, and that that is a, a very good point. And if we can fix the breakdown there, now all of a sudden, if we're rebuilding the walls of Christendom, right? We're Pastor Brandon's preaching through Ezra right now. We're on Ezra 1, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Christendom. We need to rebuild. There's nothing but ruins here. That foundation that you can really build this thing on is obviously Christ is the cornerstone and his word 
but the family is like that thing. If you could rebuild the family, all this other stuff actually does take care of itself. It really and truly does. And because you can't rebuild the family without the church, right? And so, so we'll move to the church as that covenant institution. If you're a pastor, right? And I have two pastors here that I brag about you guys all the time. People ask me, hey, who do you know that did this right? And who do you know that, you know, if you're in Birmingham, it's Rich. And, and if you're in the Montgomery area, it's Pastor Brandon. Um, <clears throat> if you have been a coward as a pastor, repent, right? If you are not preaching the word of God in its fullness because you're worried about the offering on Sunday, repent, right? And I know I can sit here and look you guys in the eyes and say this, and you know I'm not talking about you guys, but but it's true. And, and you guys have probably felt those tensions and that pressure like, God, if I preach this this Sunday, so-and-so might leave, and I don't know if we're going to pay the light bill. These are all tensions that pastors feel, but you are in a covenant relationship. When you, were, when you went through ordination and you were ordained as a pastor, you made uh, a covenant with God that you are going to do these things. And if you're not doing those things, um, you need to repent and fulfill your duty and preach the full counsel of God um, unafraid uh, and and pastor and shepherd your people and do that and take responsibility for that. Um, do you guys have anything you would add to what that might look like? So as we're working, you're working through Zephaniah, we're working through Ezra and then Nehemiah. And, um, and, and I can anticipate one of the potential objections as we sit here and talk about what we should do. And, and, and uh, the first thing is you should pray. Well, certainly we should pray. And Scripture commands us to pray for those who are in authority. But, but as we think about the people of God and what you're saying uh, and, and our call to pray, as you open up uh, with Nehemiah in particular, you open up with a very heartfelt prayer, and, and you see prayers of repentance, a taking a responsibility for, for what's been done wrong or for what's not been done that should have been done. Uh, but what I love displayed in those books and many other places is, particularly in Nehemiah, but Ezra as well, is, is they're not we're, we're not praying and then sitting on our hands. We're also uh, not getting after it, but not seeking God. We're praying and seeking God and repenting and asking for his favor and direction, and then we're getting after it. Yeah. And so sometimes I think Christians can easily just say, well, we just need to pray, as if God doesn't tell us to do anything else. Amen. Yeah, prayer is, of course, foundational, but prayer is also not a substitute for taking the action we need right. to take. Amen. And going back, so in that covenant relationship within the jurisdiction of the church, and we want to talk about our founders and what was so special about that time and those people, they had the Black Robe Regiment. <clears throat> it was the pastors who were pushing those people to do those things. They were preaching from the Word of God the injustices that were happening and the tyranny that was happening and what Christians should do. And it wasn't some French Revolution radicalism that they were preaching or some, you know, <clears throat> anarchy. It was it was literally rebellion to tyrants as obedience to God. We have a king, and his name is Jesus, and that's who we're going to obey. Um, and it was the pastors who were leading the charge from the pulpit uh, they they were the recruiting stations. They didn't have like the army has recruitment offices where they lie to you a whole bunch about how great the army is going to be. And then you sign up and go in there and none of it's true. Um, <clears throat> that's not what it was. It was the churches and it was the pastors that were preaching, um, faithfully preaching the scriptures as it applied to something that was going on in their time. And they rallied up the hearts of the men and the men said, I know I need to go and fight. And so when the British came in, they, they intercepted letters. Um, you know, <clears throat> they called it the, the, what it was like the, the, the uh, not the Presbyterian affliction, but it was basically it was a bunch of frustrated, you know, strong conservative reform pastors that were preaching, and they would target those pastors because they knew that that those pastors were who was turning out soldiers, and so we need to be pastors that are turning out soldiers uh, for this you know unconventional fight that's not a, a conventional warfare like it was then, but it is a fight. It's an information war. It's a media war, 
It's a culture war. It's all of these things. So we need to be preaching in such a way that we're creating soldiers to jump into this, this culture war, this media war, this info war. And then finally the state, if you are a legislator of some sort, or you're a government official, you're a civil magistrate, whether you're the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, state auditor, you know, U S Senate, U S Congress, um, state legislator, state Senator, or anything under that sheriff, whatever, if you put your hand on a Bible and said that you were going to uphold the United States Constitution, the state constitution, to do your duties in a way that brings justice and peace for the people who are under you, and you are not doing that, and you are um, using your position as a, as a way to fatten your pockets at the expense of those you are supposed to be representing and, and, and standing for, you are in sin and you need to repent. And so it's repentance in each one of those institutions. If we could get fathers to repent and pick up the mantle and be fathers. We could get pastors to to repent and be pastors. And if we could get our civil magistrates to repent and be good, righteous rulers who use the power that they've been given for the good and the well-being of the people in a way that honors God, everything changes overnight. And that's something that Dr. Stuart Tankersley has always said. He said, the whole thing is repentance. The whole thing is repentance. The whole thing is repentance. And I think we can literally go in to break a, a broad call to repentance down into actually covenant you know, institution repentance. That's what I've got. You guys, anything else before we roll? I think you're right on because in in each of those spheres, the church is leading the way. So you have that with the Black Robe Regiment. You can go deeper in history with the Scottish Covenanters, and you can keep going all the way back. But the church is leading the way. And it's not that the church is trying to get involved in every nuance of economic policy, but it's the church saying, we will speak everywhere Scripture speaks. And our ordination vows as pastors is to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. So uh, whatever you want to call that, if you want to call it political or whatever arena that puts us in, we have a responsibility. If Scripture speaks to this issue, we need to speak to, to that issue, and we need to speak with the same tone and emphasis that Scripture would speak to that issue. Amen. Yeah, the calling is to disciple the nations. Yeah. Uh, so the nations in every aspect of their life are to be... Uh, transformed, brought into submission to the Word of God and to the Lordship of Christ. And anything less than that is compromised. We've diluted the mission that Christ gave to us. So we have to disciple the nations as such. And uh, we ought to ask ourselves, what would a discipled United States of America look like? And as a, as a stepping stone to get to that, we can ask, well, what would a discipled Alabama look like? What yeah. would a discipled uh, Birmingham look like? What would a discipled Montgomery look like? What would yeah. a what would my neighborhood look like if it was fully discipled? Amen. So at every level, we can ask this question, but that's the ultimate goal, is that the yeah. world would be full of discipled nations. And uh, yes, that's going to mean preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God as it comes to bear on all of life and all of culture. The goal from the very beginning has been to, you know, from the very beginning of the human race, the creation mandate, uh, the, the, the whole purpose is to create a God-glorifying civilization, uh, the city of God. And that's, that's what we're called to do, and that's, that's the mission, that's the task. And pastors obviously don't do all of that, and, and I agree with you, Brandon. We don't need to speak to every detail of every proposed piece of legislation or what have you that comes down the pike. Uh, we let the spheres do their own thing. But it is up to the church to inform every sphere about its calling, its obligations, its responsibilities. The big Amen. picture of discipleship is there. That's what the church is to do. And that means pastors need to need to know about these things, and they need to be teaching and preaching these things. Yeah. The prophets of the Old Testament faced down kings and told them that they were in sin and that they needed to repent. And yeah. Even it. John the Baptist with Herod. Yeah. 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 You can't uh, do acknowledging that, his sin. Got his head cut off. 
This is great. I think an, a, another thing we could bring you guys back on, I want to talk about uh, what does general equity mean in the confessions? I realize that sounds super high lofty and theological, but it's actually really simple about, you know, where did, where did our laws come from in America, right? Talk about William Blackstone, Israel Civil Code and all that and why that matters. Um, if that doesn't sound riveting to you, maybe we'll do it on one of Rich's podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll I'll, uh, I'll send it out, a write-up out on 1819. So, all right, guys. Well, um, before we go, I want to remind you guys one more time, join the fight. We need you guys to join the fight. Uh, when, you, when you're prompted as you're reading the articles to join the fight uh, with, a, with a monthly uh, gift to 1819 News, uh, become a member. Um, do that. You'll, you'll get access to exclusive content. You'll get merch. But the heart of it is not about the content and the merch. We want to do that to thank you um, for supporting us. But it's ultimately we're asking you to join the fight, support the work that we're doing uh, as we pursue a free, free and flourishing Alabama as 1819 News. Well, until next time, guys, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>